Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with community and civil rights activist and retired pediatrician Janet Moses with host Michael Lerner. Janet Moses, welcome to the new school. Well, thank you very, very much. Janet, I was trying to remember how long we've known each other, and I think it's since um, 1983. Uh, your husband, Bob Moses, had a MacArthur Fellowship, and I think we initially met through the MacArthur uh, Fellows uh, Program. And then my memory, and please correct it if you have it differently, is that you and I really got to uh, know each other through the Harvard Conferences on Integrative Medicine, which our friend David Eisenberg put on. Right. Is that your memory? No, that is. Yeah. And uh, you and I remember would sit in David Eisenberg's wonderful integrative medicine conferences, which we were both enjoying, but we had a real sense that it didn't address the reality of life for low-income people and low-income communities of color. And we would sort of sit there together and wonder at the absence of, um, of that important piece of integrative care. Well, I think that that's absolutely true. It's probably, unfortunately, if we look at um, medicine today, um, and even um, if you think of integrative care as being more progressive, there certainly is a, an absence of um, issues um, that really affect um, communities of color, um, black people, brown people in particular. Um, I think there's been, you know, if you, there, there has been, and I want to qualify that. Um, you know, I retired, I can't believe it's about 14 years ago, but since that time, the people have begun to look at what they call the gaps in care and outcomes um, between um, white, the white population and the black population. Um, so there is some attention, but I think that um, the, the core of the problem is that we're looking at issues that are not so much medical issues. They, they, they are expressed at times as medical issues. But the heart and soul, the structure of them, really is rooted in um, the structure of the society of a caste system, which is historical, a racial caste system, which is historical in this um, country, and um, white supremacy. Um, and you can look at that um, in terms of medicine. I don't know whether, and, and maybe I'm digressing, Michael. I don't know whether you want to go there. Um, but I think that anyway, that that's, that's really a problem, um, that a lot of the problems that are identified as, um, you know, sort of um, symbols of morbidity for black and brown people are really rooted in um, the structures, the historical structures of this country. And therefore, not so much medical problems as symptoms of deeper problems that medicine is not prepared to address. Right, absolutely, Janet, and and we are free to go anywhere in this conversation. But that's a good starting point. I should note uh, because you've you've had a particular seat at the table on this, both as a, a pediatrician with a long and distinguished career at MIT, 
Um, and also, um, as the uh, wife and partner of Bob Moses, who is the truly legendary uh, civil rights uh, leader, uh, Taylor Branch and his extraordinary uh, 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 books on the, the Martin Luther King years, really um, contrasted uh, King and uh, your husband, Bob, as two sort of seminal uh, leaders through that period of time. Obviously, King is the uh, example of the, um, you know, the preacher, uh, uh, minister, um, who was, you know, so visible. And, um, and Bob uh, taking a very different approach. Uh, there's a quote from Taylor Branch. Moses pioneered an alternative style of leadership from the princely church leader that King epitomized, says civil rights historian Taylor Branch, author of Parting the Waters. He was the thoughtful, self-effacing loner. He is really the father of grassroots organizing, not the Moses summoning his people on the mountaintop as King did, but ironically, the anti-Moses going door to door, listening to people, letting them lead. So uh, we'll, we'll come back to Bob, but um, you have had uh, an extraordinary um, place in the civil rights movement. And I was just reflecting this morning that while we know uh, a lot about Coretta Scott King and we know a lot about Martin Luther King and people who are students of the civil rights movement know a lot about Bob Moses, but, Janet, very few people know about you. And so uh, our friendship and my deep sense of who you are and your contribution uh, made me so uh, grateful to have a conversation with you and really sort of create a, a, at least a small trace of a record of um, the extraordinary journey that you have been on through this period of time. Well, thank you. I, I don't know whether I um, certainly warrant all of those accolades, Michael. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm, I've been a very um, private person. And um, I don't know. I think that, you know, my, my heart and my head um, really um, sort of makes me gravitate to the more private um, and... Let me let me backtrack of, of, of something. I don't know. Do you know Gil Scott Heron? Uh, I know the know name. Him? Yeah. Yeah. He has a, a wonderful piece. Um, he's not with us anymore. Um, but he said the revolution will not be televised. I remember that quote. <laughs> yeah. So that that has that will stick with me. And there there are people who are working. Um, tirelessly and anonymously in communities all over this country that are important um, in ways that um, you know they're not they're not known we don't know about them right their work makes possible the coming together the the coalescing of efforts that um, we characterize as being the movement. And um, we don't see all the little rivulets that are part of it. So, you know, I have felt that, you know, to do a little, you do what you can. Um, I am by no means a major figure in this movement. I mean, I, I, I am not. 
but I think that um, I certainly have tried to dedicate um, um, my adult life to the kind of work that um, quietly, you know, sort of laboring in the field and being quite very satisfied with that, very, mm-hmm. very, very satisfied with that. Well, I recognize and, and honor your humility. I just want to note that, um, that in February 2015, the um, city of Cambridge um, renamed uh, a youth center, the Dr. Robert and Janet Moses Youth Center, with a, a proclamation from the vice mayor. Um, yeah. And I also want to note that in uh, 2016, uh, there was a MIT lunch uh, celebrating uh, activism in the MLK era. And uh, you and uh, Bob uh, and um, a colleague of yours, um, uh, Topper Carew, uh, Carew uh, were all celebrated. And um, so uh, while you... Um, have have been a quiet figure. Uh, you are not unknown to those who uh, have paid attention to this movement. So, so let me just put it that way. Thank you. Yeah. So let me start at the beginning. Um, uh, where were you born? I was born in the Bronx mm-hmm. um, in February nineteenth, actually nineteen forty two. Mm-hmm. And um, that's where I, I grew up um, and lived there in a little three-room apartment um, with my mother and um, brother um, until I went to college. Um, no, actually, um, until I finished college. And, um, after, and yeah. And what was so your family like? Fine. What was your family like? Um, I, very, very interesting. My mother and father, I think what was most interesting about them, I never figured out how they ever agreed to become a couple. Uh-huh. <laughs> so my, my father um, was born in the West Indies. He was born in 1898, if you can believe that. Wow. And um, I really, and he, he lived until um, he was 100. He died in um, 1998. And he lived with us for the last three years of his life. Um, he was, interestingly, a major... As I got older and you look back at your life, you wonder what role your parents had played. And so I learned things from my father that were not explicit. They were more implicit. Um, by the time I was 10, I think, my parents um, split. And um, so from 10 until... Um, you know, adulthood, or not just from 10, but um, my mother was the major figure um, in raising my brother and myself. Um, uh, what I learned from her, my mother's, let me go back, um, if it's okay, and talk a little yes. bit about my mother's life. Please. She was born in 1904 in um, Greenville, North Carolina, and then the family moved to Greenville, South Carolina. Um, she stayed there until through high school, and um, as many um, middle-class black women from the South um, did, they go to come to New York, Cleveland. I mean, she ended up at Shaker Heights in Cleveland um, looking for a job as a domestic. 
and her actual goal was to go to nursing school. But, you know, finances, she had to work and send money back. She did land a job um, as a domestic. <laughs> she said that she couldn't do anything. She said that the little girl liked her in the family, and so that's why the family hired her. And um, she went to East Technical High School. Um, I think Jesse Owens um, had preceded her there and was able to take the test um, to qualify for um, nursing school. So this must have been 1920, the nursing school was three years, 1925, 1926. So you're looking at the middle of the depression. There were only five schools in this country that would train black women, African-American women, to be nurses, if you can imagine that. Hmm. So um, Bellevue Harlem was one of those schools. My mother um, ended up there and graduated from there in 1929. Um, she was an extraordinary woman. I mean, she wanted to be a doctor. And, um, but as the older, the older surviving child in the family, one, her older brother had died, of, I think, of typhoid fever when he was seven. So she was responsible for bringing the, um, her brothers and sisters and her mother up to New York where the family settled. Um, her father died, um, I think, a couple of years before um, she brought her mother up, but each of her younger siblings um, she brought up, and um, this is where the family settled. And so, you know, it was four. Well, I remember the because four West 129th Street between their sort of um, homestead there and our little um, space in the Bronx. Um, this is basically, you know, the bookend of my, you know, early childhood. And what was so, your father like? A, a very interesting man. He, he born in um, Dominica, um, West Indies, and he never became Americanized. Um, he was always um, aware of his otherness. And part of that, of course, is being black in America. Um, the other part was his eccentricity. Um, he was not highly educated, but he knew that, you know, if you know it, he, he could learn it. Whatever he needed to know. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, you know, he was in his late 60s where he built his house from the ground up in, um, in Jersey. Um, as a child, I remember him always having a slide rule. And at one point, he tried to teach me how to read a slide rule. And I, to this day, I don't know, mm. <laughs> you know, how to do it. Um, my mother said he was a jack of all trades, and the only trade that he was master of was um, tailoring. And tailoring meant that you brought cloth, you shrunk it before you designed the, you know, whatever it was, you cut it out and you sewed it. He was a master, a master tailor. Um, so he was, you know, as I said, a jack of all trades. He always, he always had property. And um, that was a sense of himself, I guess, you know, on this planet. And most of his life, he worked for himself. So um, the importance of having a piece of land that you could hold on to um, was something that um, he instilled or I imbibed somehow. Um, the other was a consciousness about who you are as an African-American in America. 
And I said that he never was Americanized. He actually was a member of Garvey's movement. Oh, how interesting. And um, he, he told me, and this is, you know, what he, he said, that, that he came to this country on a boat um, doing, what do you call it, merchant marine? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you get papers or something, you get on the boat. And he said at one point the boat um, that he was able to get a berth on was going to Africa, and I don't know what country this was, but he said he went there looking for his uncle. Hmm. So the story that I pieced together that another member of his family had left Dominica, gone to um, someplace in Africa, probably one of the French colonies, because Dominica was initially um, colonized by the French. And my father talked about going to school first in French, and then the English um, took over. So you're looking at, what, 1914, 1915, and his, um, he said that he was raised by his grandmother. So, you know, you think my father's born in, 1990, in 1898. And he said his grandmother spoke neither French nor English. She spoke Oku. So, you know, the, that means that she was brought to, and he felt that he, she had been taken from Africa as a child. Wow. And then raised, but she never learned French, you know, Dominica being controlled by the French, and she never learned English. Wow. So she spoke Oku, and then he told me a few things that he remembered of, of growing up. And then, um, uh, I don't know, you know, you fast forward to what, 2004, I retired um, from medicine, was it 2004? Um, yes, 2004. And one of my um, family um, was from the Cameroon. And so, you know, people look at me and they say, you know, where are you from? You're from Jamaica. I have dreads. You know, mm-hmm. black women with dreads come from Jamaica. And I have to say no. But for some reason, I told the family this story about my father and the grandmother who had come to visit from the Cameroon. She said, well, we have an Oku people there, Oku people, people who speak Oku in the Cameroon. So that was really, um, I don't know, you know, I mean, um, my grandmother, you know, my, on my father's side, you know, was she from the Cameroon? It's quite possible. But that, um, that sense of other and being comfortable, I, you know, and, I'm, and Michael, I'm, I'm speaking to you and I'm processing, you know, this is the age, you know, we have Trump, this crazy man running around. Um, in this country, not new, very comfortable, you know, he's at home in America. Right. Um, but I, you know, I always, and I guess I got this from my father, um, you're comfortable in your space. I'm comfortable um, in, in an inner comfort um, in being other. I have no desire um, to be the, the quintessential American. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that my my politics from 
you know, my father and for my mother who was um, running this, you know, there were people that were very close that had been in the Communist Party that helped to organize nursing um, when she was in nursing school. And so um, there's a whole left-wing politics orientation that, um, you know, is part of my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's a pacifist tradition from uh, my uncle, her brother, her younger brother, who was um, a pacifist and um, went to jail. She he was a conscience objector during World War II. So anyway, at, at this point, you know, it, it, I'm not afraid of um, this country. I'm, I'm, I'm very much aware and comfortable um, with who I am, even if that means that you are or that I am other right. um, within the structures of this country. So, does that make sense? Yes, it makes perfect sense. What is your earliest memory, Janet? Really? my Oh, oh I have two. <laughs> my earliest memory, I think I must have been about two. And um, my mother had sent me to a, a daycare program. And I think um, she told me later, she said, well, this is what I remember about the daycare program. I remember the crib. And I remember that we always had potatoes, mashed potatoes, which I actually liked. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't remember anything else about it except being in a crib and having mashed potatoes for lunch. <laughs> but I, I didn't stay there long mm-hmm. um, because my mother said that, you know, she would put me on the bus. I don't know how old it is, two, three years old. And she said, you would come off the bus just like I sent you. So she said that meant that you hadn't been playing. Uh huh. So she, so she put you on the bus by yourself? No, no. Well, oh, there okay. Were, there were monitors. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But the bus would come, and not the not the. Oh, I see. It was the the, bus was the, the, the daycare school. bus, right? You're right. The daycare bus, right? So she said she would send me off in the morning. Yeah. The daycare bus, and I would come home just as neat and clean as. Right. Kept. So she said, "No, no, no." Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> what was the What was the other early memory? The other memory was my brother being born, not his being born, but bringing him home from the hospital, uh-huh. and um, my parents arguing about the route that they should take, which way they should go. <laughs> <laughs> so, as I said, they were oil and water. Right. So it's right. very much oil and water. Right. So, so that, that memory, that's a four-year-old memory. I don't remember. Um, yeah, those are my earliest ones. Right. So was there any point in your life where you became conscious of yourself and had a sense of calling or purpose or destiny in any way? Um, I, I always... Um, do you want to know how old or... Well, just... Was there a point where you sort of became aware of yourself and had some sense of direction or hope or sort of what what you hoped for in your life? Yeah, I think that was probably before, somewhere in high school mm-hmm. or middle school, um, maybe even earlier when I was in elementary school. Mm-hmm. My sense 
Yeah, I think it was elementary school. Yeah. And I think my Uncle Richard um, played an important part of this. I said that he was a conscientious objector right. during World War II. And I didn't meet him until um, I was five years old. So we're looking at what? 42, 5, 46, 47. I think I was five. And I remember he was a hero in our family. And um, I think by the time I was in junior high school, I was aware enough about the world such that I was really annoyed when my teacher, a social studies teacher, referred to Japanese people as the Japs. He was talking to us about the war. Mm-hmm. So that, um, and then in elementary school, um, I went to um, typical urban, 99% black um, elementary neighborhood school, and my most, probably one of the most important people outside of my family um, in my life was a woman by the name of Elizabeth Newby. She was my sixth grade teacher. She was a substitute teacher. She had come up from the South. But she understood that the school um, was structured to make sure that we could not learn, that we would not learn. Um, And so we knew that she was um, an advocate for us. She always had lunch in the room, in our homeroom by herself, and she would invite some of us to um, have lunch with her. Um, She was an extraordinary person. And so I knew... I knew that she was at odds with um, the school, the other teachers. She was one of the few black teachers in the school. This is what, 19, so sixth grade, what are you, 11 years old, sixth Mm -hmm. grade? Yeah, something of that sort. And probably, I I actually was her pet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And um, she taught me and I, this lesson is a very, very hard lesson. But she taught me the importance of being true to yourself and to the people around you. So I was sort of the, the, the president of the class or the, the spokesperson. And so I'll just tell you this anecdote. She, um, at graduation, each class had to give a gift to the, we would get for the school. And traditionally, each class gave a watch to the principal or to the vice principal. I mean, this school lacked so much, um, not even curtains in the auditorium. So that's what, that's what my class said. We wanted curtains in the auditorium. Um, and I, I was sent down to represent, this, represent my class. And I said that I wanted curtains in the auditorium. And the vice principal who was running the meeting um, said that, well, you're the only one who wants curtains. Everybody wants to give a watch. Every other class has agreed to give a watch to Mr. Levine. And so I said, well, I want curtains. And so he said, then he said to me, he said, well, let's make this unanimous. You know, you're the only one. Let's make it unanimous. Now, I'm, I'm what, 11 years old? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So I say, okay, I'll make it unanimous. But the assembly... Um, that week he announces, I'm sitting next to Ms. Newby, Mrs. Newby, and um, he announces that the class representatives have decided to give a gift of a watch to the principal. And then he says, it's un- it was unanimous. 
So she turned and looked at me, and I said, oh, my God, I'm on the hot seat. Because I knew she had, she, we learned about our history in her class. She, um, what can I tell you? I mean, she was everything that so many teachers are not today. Um, and she understood that we were under siege, as was she. So anyway, we got back up to our homeroom, and I was going to shrink in my seat, and she told everybody to sit down. She said, Janet, you come up to the, um, to the front of the room. And um, she asked the class, she said, now when you send somebody, when you elect somebody um, to do something, to represent you, and then they, they go in the meeting and they don't do what you've sent them to do, um, what do we call that person class? And, of course, this is June, right? right. <laughs> we have been to, and the class says, well, wait, that's an Uncle Tom. That's an Uncle Tom. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So I nearly, I was just mortified, mortified, mortified. You know, and I, I just, even telling you the story, I can see myself standing in the classroom, you know. And um, this is, she sends everybody downstairs to have lunch, and she says that I was, I was to stay behind. And, and so she consoled me, but I knew that she, you know, you, she was, you can't do this. You know, you can't misrepresent your people. You know, you can't get down there with the white folks and not, and Kate, you know. And so then she sent me down to get her lunch and come back up and we had lunch together. But it was a profound, profound, um, you know, experience. And she could only do this, um, because of her experience coming out of the South. Right. You know? Yeah. And if you think about it, um, if you think about um, what has happened since the Civil Rights Movement, and it's not um, in terms of black leadership in this country. And so much of our, not grassroots leadership, but the, the public leadership, so many of our people have wanted to be in the woodwork of this society. Right. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Janet Moses and Michael Lerner. Right, and so there's no, there's no demand, there's no ask. You know, they think that their success is a measure of our progress. <laughs> right. So... You know, so who were you, Janet, who were you in eighth grade? In eighth grade, I was, who was I? Yeah. Janet Jamat. Janet Jamat. When you say, who was I? Mm-hmm. Right, who were you? Yeah. Well, I was... Um, Janet Jamat. Jamat. J-E-M-M-O-T-T. J-E-M-M-O-T-T. That's my maiden name. Okay. Um, and if you were from Barbados, you would probably pronounce it Jemmet. Okay. But my mother liked Jemmet better. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what were you like? What? What? Who were you? Who? Who were you in the sense of, you know, when you th- when you see yourself in eighth grade, uh, who were you in the class? Who were you in yourself? Um, in the class, my mother gave me a false address and sent me across town. Do you know New York? Yes, I, I'm from New York. Okay, so um, I went to, um, I lived near 3rd Avenue in the Bronx, South Bronx, that's right. where I grew up. Mm-hmm. So she sent me across town because she said that she wasn't going to have me at the 
feeder school um, in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So um, a family lives on the other side of um, Park Avenue, um, Park Avenue in the Bronx, not Park Avenue mm-hmm. in Manhattan. And so they were in the district for PS22, which was primarily a um, upper middle class. Um, I would say most of the, the kids were Jewish, um, coming from the Grand Concourse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's where she sent me, and I was placed in, um, what was it, 7-2. So the higher exponent in, in, in the school system, the lower the achievement level of, um, of the kids. And so most of the black kids have been herded into 7, 12, or whatever it was. And um, I had been put in 7, 2. There was 7, 1, 7, 2. Um, anyway, so I was, I was isolated. I was, I was, culturally, I was isolated. But I think I had enough, um, when I say culturally, I was isolated. I mean, I was the only black kid there. But the... The lot of experiences that I had growing up, um, I didn't feel that um, I couldn't measure up. Um, and um, my mother had instilled in me that, you know, you're going to have to work twice as hard as the white kids because, you know, you're not going to be judged, you know, the same as they are. And so I have been prepared, um, you know, and instilled, you know, by her, um, not my father wasn't in the home by that time, um, you know, about what I would have to do. I mean, we didn't have money. You know, my mother was working as a registered nurse, and um, we had no money, but we had books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and she had saved, I, I tell you this to give an inkling of the kind of foresight that she had. Um, she had saved 10 years to take my brother and myself and one of her sisters across country to visit her brother in California. Ten years, Michael. Mm. So this is 1952. So there was, you know, there was a sense of the world outside of our little apartment in the Bronx. But she said that, um, well, I said, Mama, can't we move? Can't we move? Can't we move? She said, Janet, it's the same son. (laughs) She said what? It's the same son as you uh-huh. said. It's, uh, right. Mm-hmm. It's a little old apartment. Wow. You know, but yeah. it's the same son. Where are you going? Mm-hmm. So anyway, I had a sense of myself. I was comfortable in my skin. Mm-hmm. I was aware by the time I was in eighth grade, um, mm-hmm. certainly that I was um, a minority, you know, within that environment. Mm-hmm. But academically, I was, um, you know, I, I could hang. I, I had... A couple experiences, really. Um, one experience, I had a teacher who, no matter, I was getting all A's, but she never graded me more than a B um, in class. Um, and so I knew this was, and, you know, we can identify it as, as you know, racism and prejudice. So, you know, my awareness of, um, I know, do I ever answer your question? Yeah, no, you did. So... Let me ask you this. Let's sort of jump ahead now. Uh, what were you like as a senior in high school, and what transitions had you made to get there? Oh, boy. Senior in high school, I wanted to get out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where were you? I was at Taft. Uh-huh. 
um, so the PS22, Junior High School 22, fit into town. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I really want, I, 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 I was there three and a half years. I, yeah, I didn't, I got out of high school early. And, um, I, yeah, I guess by that time I was, um, I didn't quite have a peer group. Um, I had friends, but not um, kids that I hung with. Um, and part of that was that um, I'm traveling all the way on the other to the other side of the Bronx to go to school. That's number one. Number two, there are hardly any um, black kids. Um, I think I have one Latino friend, close friend in school, in high school. Um, Julie, she was Puerto Rican, um, lived in the neighborhood. She also made the trek. Um, I had friends among the black students, but I didn't have, um, I didn't have buddies, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, I had been placed in a class that was preparing kids for the, to go to, you know, Hunter or City or Queens, mm-hmm. and there were, there were no other black, and, and, and so this is not to say, you know, I was the only black, that's not why I'm, I'm saying that I'm looking no. at structures, you know, which guarantee that may, if there are any of us. They're just a few, right? Right. Um, I'd also started by the time I, I was going down to, um, I did have a peer group at my uncle's church. My uncle Richard, whom I said was a conscious objector, um, was working as the assistant pastor at um, Morningside Presbyterian Church. And um, that church, um, the Black people who went across North Africa that predated the Peace Corps. Yeah. It was the pilots of the Peace Corps. So, so that was the church with Reverend Eugene Robinson. And my uncle, Richard Stenhouse, was the assistant pastor. And so he was in charge of the youth group. So on the weekends, I would go down and I would I would hang out. And that was 122nd Street, Morningside Avenue, right near in the foothills of Columbia. Um, and um, so that those were my, my buddies um, there. And I have... Um, at least one friend um, made a lifelong friend there. But the life of the average um, African-American teenager, you know, we're looking in 1958, 1959, um, I sort of was able to immerse myself, you know, in that. The doo-wop group on the corner, um, you know, exposed to issues of police brutality. One of the kids got shot by the police. Um, And aware from what the boys would say of what their risks and vulnerability were in the neighborhood. Um, So anyway, it was, um, that's who I was. It was um, in high school. I was, I was 16 when I went to Hunter. Mm -hmm. So I was, um, yeah, I was young, you know. And what was that like? Oh, it was exciting. It was wonderful. It was, um, I had I had two choices for college. One, um, Plattsburgh Teachers College, and I don't know why I picked that, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I had gotten into Hunter, and uh, after a couple of months there, I decided that I wasn't going to go to Plattsburgh. The other reason, my mother only had $900 
And so that was the cost for, I don't know, a semester or a year at um, Plattsburgh. And, of course, Hunter at that time was $24 a semester. So I could take the subway for $0.10 and pay $24 for each semester. I mean, it was a free education. It was phenomenal. And, of course, you're exposed to um, kids from all over the city. And New York is your, you know, is your playground. So, and you're thinking, so this is 1959, 1960, what was happening, 60, 61? I mean, you're talking about peace movement, you're talking about, you know, Cuba, you're talking about civil rights movement. Um, I gravitated towards um, um, red diaper babies and um, at one very good friend with whom I'm still, um, you know, she's a wonderful, um, wonderful friend who was gravitated more towards the, um, the nationalist, the black nationalist movement, um, um, while we were in school. And, um, I think that that also, I mean, my, my bent in, or my political, um, awareness, I think bridges those two movements, mm-hmm. um, those two energies. So. And so what were you like as a senior at Hunter? A senior? Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't stay for... <laughs> I, <laughs> what was I like? I was... Um, this is 1962. Um, really, um, I was a very good student, um, active, you know, protesting, you were, you know, marching, you know, in front of Woolworth because of what they were doing in the South. Um, and um, the peace movement, going to demonstrations. Um, but by the time, I guess by the time I got out of Hunter, that was, that was the summer of 62 that I, um, that I finished. Um, I actually um, had applied to um, the New York School of Social Work and I had gotten accepted, and I had gotten a scholarship to go there. And I, um, I lasted about six months. I, I just—it was—you talk about oil and water. Um, it was just very clear that I had made the wrong choice. Um, and part of the reason for making that choice is because I—I I thought, well, you should go to graduate school. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, so I said, well, I'll apply to social work school because you know, everybody's talking about where they're going, you know, and social work seemed reasonable. But cognitively and politically, I was not, um, that was not the place for me. So what did you do instead? Well, I went for six months. No, I didn't last for six months. I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't finish the semester. <laughs> I gave them their scholarship back. I think it was $900. And then I had to look for a job. And, you know, a skinny little black girl, you know, in New York is not going to find very, very much. Um, and so I ended up um, applying to New York City um, Board of Education. My mother insisted, insisted, insisted that I take some education courses in Hunter. And I resisted mm-hmm. <laughs> until the nth hour. But all you needed was nine credits in education. Um, and then you had to major in something such that you could, you know, you could apply for a job. I, I couldn't get, I wasn't getting hired. I was, you know, you go out. I understand people who give up looking for work because you know that the answer is no. 
you know, and after a while, no begins to sink in. So I, I finally said, okay, this is not working. Um, so I applied, um, you know, as a substitute teacher, and I got hired um, because this particular class um, needed, I, I guess from the point of view of the principal, he just wanted a body in there, you know, in the room. And this was class 813 at Watley Junior High School. So I was um, 20 years old. And, yeah, 20, yeah, 20. And so that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Ended up teaching because um, there wasn't very much. The, the career office officer at, at Hunter, and she happened to be a black woman at that particular time, but she was encouraging um, black women to apply as um, to work in the post office or, um, what was it, nursing or teaching. Mm-hmm. Those were the jobs that, um, you know, were open for us. And I just, I mean, I, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. And I think that's why I majored in anthropology, so that nobody could ask me to work. <laughs> so anyway, that was, um, but all of those teach you something. You know, they teach you something about, certainly me, about the world around me. And, mm-hmm. you know, my mother always insisted. She said, Janet, um, you're not going to have a problem because you're a woman. You're going to have a problem because you're black. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, her own education of my brother and myself um, and the people around her, I mean, we understood. Not that there was something wrong with us because, you know, the color of our skin, but we understood that we were on a mission. Um, we had to have a mission. And if we were going to survive, um, you know, we would have to confront the racism. And, of course, part of confronting it was, you know, outdoing the white folks, you know. Mm-hmm. So, anyway. So, I, I have a tendency to digress. No, no, but that's I like your digressions. So, how long did you teach? Um, well, that, I, from 1962 until 64, and mm. by this, I guess by the winter of 63, I had decided to go south. I mean, I, I was, you know, reading in the paper and, you know, friends who were talking about, you know, what was going around and what was going on in Mississippi. Um, you know, we were doing our little, you know, protests up here. But something inside of me, something deeply inside, said that, you know, Janet, you need to go south. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that was a sense of, you know, to say, well, who were you? Um, whoever I thought I was, I was, I would not be able to um, not go and face myself. Mm-hmm. Does that? Makes perfect sense. Yeah. And, and so when did you go time, south? Pardon me? When did you go south? Um, the summer of 1964. I stopped. You asked me initially about teaching, so I, I had this class, and um, I worked for two years at Wally Junior High School, um, and I stayed until June of 1964 because I didn't want to leave my class. Right. But I was clear that I was not going to um, continue teaching given what was going on um, in Mississippi. So um, I got myself together. Um, I went down to Augusta. My Uncle Richard by that time was 
teaching at Augusta College, and he sent me over to Vincent Harding. You, you must have known Vincent. I don't think so. So he's one of the major uh, historians of the movement. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, Martin Luther King's um, Riverside speech that he gave in 1965, mm-hmm. in which he talked about peace and the economy, mm-hmm. um, and which probably um, was probably helped to put a nail in his coffin. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Vincent wrote that speech. Wow. And Vincent, at that time, was running um, the Mennonite House in Atlanta. He and his wife, Rosemary. Um, so anyway, my my uncle Richard, I mean, he and Vincent were friends. And so Richard sent me to um, Vincent um, to make arrangements to go down to Mississippi. Um, SNCC was, the main SNCC office was in Atlanta. So um, that's, what I, that's what I did. And um, by, I think, August. Yeah, it was after the three civil rights workers were murdered. Um, I went down. Yeah. So when did you meet Bob? Well, I first met him, I think it was in Jackson. Mm-hmm. Now, we have different stories. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. We have different stories. Okay. He, doesn't, he doesn't really remember the first time mm-hmm. I met him to, to meet him. And this was at... Um, this is the end of the summer. This is the end of the summer in 64, staff meeting. And um, Bob was leading the meeting. And um, he wanted, he said, well, anybody who's not a member of SNCC staff should leave. And, of course, I had gone down as a volunteer. But Stokely um, had said that, had told me that, well, Janet, you know, you're going to stay? You want to stay? I said, yes, I want to stay. He says, well, you know, we're going to put you on SNCC staff. You're on, you know. So, Stokely being said, Stokely Carmichael. Right. And so I went up to Bob and I said, um, I know you said that, you know, only the volunteers had to leave, but, um, you know, Stokely said that I was going to be on six staff. And so I'd like to stay at the meeting. And so, you know, Bob has this blank stare that's so intimidating. Mm-hmm. And so he just looked at me and he said, Are you on six staff? And of course, the answer is no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because there's a difference between I'm going to be put on SNCC staff and are you on SNCC staff? No, I said, yes, no. He said, well. (laughs) That's what I remember. So I tell him that story. He doesn't remember. (laughs) When does he remember meeting you? He doesn't. He put me out of the movie. He put me out of the meeting. (laughs) But that was our our first What was your impression of him when you first saw him? Um, I don't know if it was first or second. What impressed me? Um, I guess the, the, well, there were two things. One, his commitment. And so how did I know about his commitment? Both his commitment and his intellect. And I remember him talking about, um, so this is 1964. He's talking about, he was he started talking about 1968 and what we had to do, you know, to make sure that we were in exposition by 1968. And these were all the forces. So that just, you know, I mean, the mind, that, that, I said, wow. I mean, he's talking about 1968, four years, <laughs> you know, so that was, you know, 
know, and just as calmly and um, clearly. Um, so anyway, that was my that was my first. That's what I was thinking when I, you know, when I when I met him. And of course, he didn't know me from Adam. You know, I was just you know somebody in the meeting. So let me ask you this: Were you attracted to him, or was that just a kind of objective? Here's this. So that was objective. Guy. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that was that was totally objective. Yeah. yeah. You know, and you know, um, by the time Bob had been married for two years, I, I, I guess you know that. I do know that. I do know that. Yeah. So he, he was married uh, to another civil rights worker, Dolores, I believe her name was. No, Donna. Donna. I'm sorry. Donna. Donna Richards. Donna Richards, um, right? Right, and um, yeah, no, I wasn't attracted mm-hmm. to him um, mm-hmm. at all. In fact, we worked together. Um, I guess you know, Sick went to Africa, mm-hmm. and then Belafonte, I think, helped with that. And um, I guess it was by 1966, and, and Bob is better at this history mm-hmm. than I am. Um, we were certainly moving, um, this was after the failure of um, Atlantic City. When I say the failure, I mean, Johnson was not going to seat um, the Mississippi delegation. And um, you know that whole story of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. I, I not only know the story, I was there as a cub reporter for the Washington Post. Covering. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's amazing. Well, you yeah. know, you I, after the interview, you know, Bob last night was listening um, to an interview of, um, no, this is the presidential records. Johnson is talking to somebody by the name of Ken. I can't, I can't pull up his, his second name now. And he's talking about um, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party and what they had to do to make sure that the party was not um, seated. So it's, it's part of the historical record, and Bob will tell you where, um, you know, where to go to find it. And somebody sent it to him um, because SNCC is now um, developing, along with Duke University, um, the archives for um, the movement, the, the SNCC part of the movement. And so this tape, presidential tape, has surfaced, but you would be very interested in listening to it. I would. Um, listening to Johnson as he plots, you know, who are the um, who are the delegates that they need to lean on so that um, they will ensure that there's no minority report coming out of the Democratic National Committee. Right. Because the minority report was going to support the seating of um, the Freedom Democratic Party. Right? And so Johnson just squashed that. And he's naming, he's naming people, he's naming states. Well, we have this person, you have this person that you have to lean on. And um, I think he mentioned, interestingly enough, Joe Rao. Um, he says, well, we need to talk to Joe about that. But, of course, Rao was, um, you know, he was also the lawyer for the MFDP. So he really was a traitor in that sense. Um so, what what was, um, by the way, for our listeners, SNCC refers to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which 
Bob played a central role in, and you were both involved uh, deeply in in Mississippi. So what was your time in Mississippi like? What did you do? Or in SNCC, but I won't assume it was all in Mississippi, but what did you do? What was it like? What was your experience in SNCC? Um, well, I worked, I was doing voter registration work. Now, what does that mean? That means, and I, I, I worked in Natchez and I worked in Fayette, um, which is Jefferson County. Um, you know, you live, it's, it's a guerrilla life, guerrilla life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you embed yourself in the community. Um, we did have a freedom house in, um, in Natchez that um, SNCC rented, where the workers lived and out of which we worked. In, in Fayette, um, we lived with, fam- with the families, um, and you worked with them. Um, Were you afraid? Um, you learn to, you, you're constantly wary. Um, the first two weeks in, in Jackson, I was terrified. And of course, it's my own I mean, you know you're not on safe grounds, but it took me about two weeks before I could really sit down and digest the meal, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you know, you have work to do. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you have to carve out your life. You can't, you can't let that fear stop you. You have to contain it. But you're never, you're never not alert um, to the dangers around you. So, um... I remember um, when I was working as a city desk reporter summers for the Washington Post while I was uh, still in college. I graduated in 65. Um, and uh, I, I worked for the Post, uh, I think, 63, 64, 65 summer. Mm-hmm. But I remember being sent south... Um, because Congressman Royce's son had been shot at as a civil rights worker in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And so I was sent down to cover this. And I remember um, driving through Mississippi in the dark in a um, car with out-of-state plates as a reporter with uh, at least one other reporter. And I remember a visceral sense of fear. I just, um, and, uh, and of course, you know, I was white and, you know, all those other things. But, um, you know, for listeners who aren't aware of it, um, you know, Bob walked into Mississippi, uh, essentially, wasn't he the first person to go in for SNCC? No, there were other people. I mean, the, the you know, he was, um... Let's backtrack a little bit. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you think of the Freedom Riders and Diane Nash. Right. Story. Okay. And so right. Bob is into Mississippi, and he's identified as a Freedom Rider. Right. Uh, but Bob's trajectory, and this is, um, I think, really important for people to understand. Yeah. Bob could not have done what he did. He was sent to Mississippi by Ella Baker. Right. And who is Ella Baker? She's... Organized, she'd been, she was working for the YWCA at that time. She was um, certainly, um, you know, traveling with Paul Robeson um, and, you know, the left. 
right. of this country. And um, she gave Bob a list of names of people to contact um, to bring to a meeting, um, and I, I don't remember where it was. Mm-hmm. And I say this because she had a list. She had a list of people in Mississippi and other places in the South that he could go to, right, um, who had been organizers or who were pillars in their community. Mm-hmm. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Janet Moses and Michael Lerner. The movement did not start in 1961, 62, 63. I met, I, I worked in Mississippi for um, a year. And what was it like? Like, I mean, I was, and I don't mean to be cavalier about that. I mean, it, I was arrested in Mississippi a couple of times. Um, and then I went to Alabama and worked with Stokely. And I remember we were visiting a man. I don't remember his name at all, but he was, um, he talked about the fact that there had been people like us who had been down in Alabama um, years before. So the first Freedom Rides were done by CORE. Um, I'm working with a project now, um, Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project, connected to Northeastern Law School, looking at racially motivated homicides between the 20s and the 70s. But the history of the Communist Party organizing in the South um, is something that's been squelched. Right? So here I, I'm a farmer in rural Alabama, and he knew all about voting because somebody had talked to him about that 20, 30 years before. Do you see what I'm, I'm saying? Yeah, no, I get it. So yeah. let me just and, take a let me take a little um, parenthesis here for listeners who don't know about uh, Bob and just do a, a brief uh, synopsis. Um, Bob was born uh, in January of 1935 in New York, grew up in a housing project in Harlem, went to Stuyvesant High School, which was an elite public school, won a scholarship to Hamilton College, earned a master's degree in philosophy in 57 from Harvard, and was working toward his doctorate when he needed to leave because of the death of his mother and the hospitalization of his father. He came back to New York and became a math teacher at Horace Mann. And during the 50s, he became increasingly interested in civil rights. He, In 59, he helped Bayard Rustin with the Youth March for Integrated Schools in Washington. And then he uh, uh, worked uh, with King on in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference uh, and then uh, volunteered to travel on behalf of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Council, then a nascent student organization sharing offices with King's Southern Christian Leadership Council. Uh, uh, and he met uh, Amzi Moore, uh, and at Moore's request, he returned to Mississippi in 61 to work on voter registration. He quickly joined SNCC's staff of three and was then named co-director of the Council of Federated Organizations, a co-op of civil rights groups in the states. Um, so um, he, as an organizer, Moses nurtured local leaders. Uh, he recognized the untapped potential of grassroots activists like Fannie Lou Hamer, 
quote, leadership is there in the people, he later said. You don't have to worry about where your leaders are, how you are going to get some leaders. The leadership is there. If you go out and work with your people, then the leadership will emerge. So he developed the idea for Mississippi uh, Freedom Summer uh, uh, in 64, which recruited Northern College students. And I was then at Harvard, and a bunch of my friends went down uh, from Harvard uh, to join uh, Mississippi uh, Summer. Uh, and um, then he suggested creating the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. Uh, so I just wanted to provide that backdrop. Uh, is there anything there you would correct, Janet? Is that a... Um, I think it's... it's um, I, I think it's important to note that his work was Atlanta. The Ella Baker... Um, was in charge of the of King's office, right? And um, she was really the mother of SNCC, right? She was the one who called the conference together for, um, and this was the Freedom Rides had started, but it was at Shaw um, University. But she called the young people together, um, SCLC, and I don't know whether any of the other organizations did. I think they, they wanted SNCC to be a wing of their organization. Mm-hmm. And it was Ellen. She was probably the only one, if you can imagine, you know, she's coming up against these very um, firm black creatures. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she said no. She said that SNCC would be its own entity. And if she had, had not done that, and the work of SNCC, because we were the shock troops in Mississippi and Alabama, um, if she had not done that, there would not have been a Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. Um, and um, a lot of the work in, and that we know, we associate you know, with the movement in um, the grassroots part of it would not have been done. Mm-hmm. And to note that Obama's roots go back. I mean, he stands on the shoulders of the work in Mississippi. Absolutely. But Mississippi, when... Mrs. Hamer and Bob and all of the sharecroppers and day workers went to um, Atlantic City, right? Um, that was the last time that the Democratic Party could have all-white delegations. Right, right. So if that had not been done, right, there was no grassroots, there was no national push, you know, from the bottom to say that you cannot have really white delegations in the Democratic Party. Right. So once that changed, right, all over the country, then those were the roots of, you know, those are Obama's roots. Absolutely. You know, and so the importance of that, and it's lost in history. Um, And that's another discussion as to why. So anyway, the importance of Ella Baker and it was Ella who sent Bob to Amzi. I see. And it was Amzi who was a veteran of World War II um, and had managed to survive. You know, there were many veterans who were murdered, you know, coming back from World War II, veterans who were in the South. Um, but he had managed to survive, and he was the one who said, this is what we need to do, Bob. You know, they're freedom rides, but that's not going to get it. We need a voter registration plan. He was particularly looking at the second district, all of these black people here, and not one, um, you know, majority black district, overwhelmingly black, and no voting. 
no voting. Right. Um, you know, and not, not, and I have to say this, um, not because of apathy, right? If we understand the history of Reconstruction, right, and there were, you know, almost a million black men voting coming out of Reconstruction, and by the time, you know, 1900, that was down to, you know, several thousand. Right, exactly. Exactly. And so what we found in the South, you know, where you go, you know, the second district, the Delta, where you don't have any black people, you know, voting, that was a result of the violence that people had incurred, um, you know, all through um, Reconstruction, post and the Jim Crow era. Absolutely. So anyway, but that, that it's important, you know, I'm, I'm being a little long-winded. But, um, I don't think you're being long-winded at all. There's a lot of history here, and, and you're filling it in. So just to uh, continue Bob's story uh, for a moment, um, uh, after uh, he suggested creating the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, and then Moses and King and the uh, MFDP delegates negotiated with uh, uh, Hubert Humphrey, the vice presidential hopeful, uh, and um, the history says, although King favored a compromise whereby MFTP would be given two at-large seats, Moses and most MFTP delegates held out for full recognition. Right. And then, uh, just to this other little piece of history, because it brings us up, uh, I think, to when the two of you get together, uh, Bob resigned uh, as the head of uh, COFO, which was the... Um, uh, which was the uh, well, federated yeah the the federated organization uh, in '64. He later commented his role had become quote too strong, too central, so that people who did not need to began to lean on me to use me as a crutch. He dropped his surname temporarily, going by his middle name Paris, and began participating in the campaign against the Vietnam War. Speaking at the first massive anti-war demonstration, April 1765, at the Washington Monument, Moses linked his opposition to the war to the civil rights struggle. As his involvement in the anti-war movement increased, he took a leave of absence from SNCC to avoid criticism from fellow members who did not support his stance. Uh, following his trip to Africa in 65, Moses came to believe that blacks must work independently of whites, and by 66, Moses had cut off all relations with whites, even former SNCC activists. Then separated from his first wife, SNCC worker Donna Richards, Moses moved to Canada to avoid the military draft in 67. He later remarried and settled in Tanzania, where he and his wife Janet lived for several years before returning to the United States. Uh, while Moses was completing his Ph.D. at Harvard, he was awarded a MacArthur Foundation Genius Award, which he used to promote the Algebra Project, a national program to improve the math literacy schools of children in poor communities. That's where I met you both, was right. at, at that point. So is that piece of the history accurate, the one that I, I think just... It, I think it's pretty good, except, except Humphrey, the Humphrey part. Yeah, um, you know, Humphrey wanted to be vice president, right? And it, it was his job to deliver the MFDP, um, which he didn't. Mm -hmm. So there was no, um, and 
you know, Humphrey, Martin Luther King, Walter Rutha. Um, I don't know, these names don't mean anything to people who are younger than us, Michael. Right. <laughs> but but we're, what we're doing here is making a little contribution to history. Right. Yeah. So the pillars of the democratic establishment, right, if you look at the unions, the churches, et cetera, but they were all um, in support of a compromise. So there was no work that Bob did with Humphrey. I mean, Humphrey, you know, he had to, you know, abandon what might have been his principles in order to support, you know, Johnson and not seating the MFDP. Martin Luther King did not support seating the MFDP. Um, Walter Ruther pressured him um, into, you know, not, um, you know, not giving his support. And um, so anyway, the, the MFDP did not support um, the compromise. Um, Mr. Tamer said, I didn't come here for, for no, you know, at large, you know, for, for two seats. <laughs> and um, SNCC, the people who were there had been organized by SNCC. They hadn't been organized by, but primarily by SNCC, under the umbrella of COCO. And so um, that ended that, I mean, you know, that, but I think it's important to know that Humphrey was not on the right side of this issue. Mm-hmm. Nor were um, most of the other civil rights leaders at that time. Right. So my memory of, and please correct me if I'm wrong, and, and uh, you know, I've had the gift of spending time with you and Bob when uh, we went down to Louisiana uh, I invited you down and uh, to look at a, a town called Norco um, and to also visit some of the other places where we were uh, doing environmental justice uh, advocacy. And you and Bob and I uh, went to uh, Norco and to other sites uh, where you know heavy toxic exposures were taking place. And so I spent some time with you both. And um, and it's one of my sort of cherished memories of, of that time together. But I have a memory, and I don't know where it comes from, and I'm not sure I've seen it in writing, but that Bob had good reason after Martin Luther King was killed and Robert Kennedy was killed uh, to fear for his life. And that... Uh, Part of the uh, decision to uh, go to Tanzania um, was um, was because he uh, wanted to live. Is that true or not? Well, I think he wanted to live. He wanted to live free. Yeah. I think um, I think there are two things here. He was um, he was probably one of the oldest people drafted. Um, right. And so there's a whole story of his getting a deferment because he was teaching at Horace Mann. Um, and this was, what, 1957 or something? Whenever Sputnik went up. Yeah, 67, right. when he moved to Canada. No, 57. Oh, 57, right. 57. So they needed teachers, so he got a deferment. And then um, after his work in SNCC and with the anti-war movement, um, his deferment was was rescinded, and so he was drafted and went to Canada. So that part, you know, um, I think there is that um, part of the story. I think the other part of the story, in terms of fearing for your life, I mean, um, I don't think many people realize that um, the titular heads of um, the 
national democratic establishment were all wiped out um, after Kennedy was killed. So, wiped out meaning killed. Killed. Yeah. So all of the, I said the titular heads, the, the titular heads, those groups that were really involved in the advocacy, the kind of um, for the civil rights movement. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about the labor movement. Who are the people who came down to um, to support the civil rights? Um, so with the labor movement, was Walter Luther. He was killed. Um, Spike. I'm forgetting his first name. He was head of the National Council of Churches. He was killed. Um, oh, um, the, the Connick Foundation. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Who was the head of the Connick Foundation? I don't have his name. I, I'm, I'm, his name, I'll, I'll pull it up after we mm. finish. Right. But that was the money that um, was used for voting registration projects. He was killed and his wife over the... Bermuda Triangle. Um, so Walter... Oh, the Couriers. Couriers, yes. Yeah. Thank mm -hmm. you so much. Mm -hmm. um, Martin Luther King was killed and mm -hmm. JFK was killed. So if you look at... We have named all of them. So I'm looking at... Um, you're, you're looking at what I'm calling the democratic establishment of the country. When you see, you know, people like this, um, going down, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's more than a notion. I mean, you get a sense of, you know, what this country is about mm -hmm. or groups in this country are about. So I don't think that Bob feared for his life, and you should talk to him about this. He, he feared. I mean, you, we live with fear. Um, right. I would say fear is the, I use the wrong word because fear is not a word that I associate with Bob's life and what he was willing to do. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think it's much better, as you said, to say that he wanted to live free. And, he wanted to live free. Yeah. So yeah. let me ask you, at what point did you and Bob begin to get together? Well, when he was in Canada. Mm-hmm. And I was um, I was the one of the contacts mm -hmm. or the contacts that he had um, back in the states, and so um, so I guess the first year he was there pretty much by himself. There were a couple other people that went up um, with him, and you know um, did odd jobs, newspaper delivery. You know, you live underground mm -hmm. basically, and. Um, I made a couple of trips up, and on one trip, you know, I don't, you know, how do you fall in love? I mean, it's <laughs> love is magical. Love is magical. Love is is absolutely, absolutely magical. So when did you fall in love? It was when um, he was in Canada. Mm -hmm. Can you so can I, you describe I, it? Um. Well, you know, I had been considered myself a comrade. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. he had left the country, and mm -hmm. you know, I was um, the contact. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't, you know. As I said, he was a comrade, and then, it, you know, why? How can I tell you? I mean, you you feel love all through your body. Yep. You know, it's it's you say it's emotional, but it's also very physical. Yep. Um, and it's. 
it's not something you plan. It 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 happens. You know? mm-hmm. So what did I, you know, you know, all of the, you know, there are corny things that we can say about love, mm-hmm. but it's a, it's certainly an opening up of yourself. It's very profound. It's, it's yeah. Up. I mean, I, that's so that. And in opening up something else, you know, you, you're encasing each other in a very spiritual way. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you feel that. You feel that physically. Mm-hmm. But uh, unintended and unexpected. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely unintended. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So did you then move up to Canada to be with him? I would, I would, I um, would go back and forth. Mm-hmm. And I was teaching school again because um, I needed to earn something. I um, moved back with my mother mm-hmm. and um, taught school at the um, kind of school that I went to. Um, this was in the Bronx, mm-hmm. um, PS 66. And I was, also, um, I was also dancing. I loved to dance. And I was dancing for a couple of years with um, Ola Tunji's um, African dance troupe, mm-hmm. and so those two things kept me busy, and um, I would go, as I said, back and forth between teaching school, African dance, and visiting Bob right every six weeks or so, mm-hmm. and um, making arrangements to um, to leave. And so we, um, I saved enough money um, to buy tickets on the Yugoslavian freighter. Yugoslavia doesn't even exist anymore. But mm-hmm. <laughs> If you think, but we left the country on a Yugoslavian freighter and um, went to, we ended up in Morocco and then traveled across land to cross the continent, across Africa, to um, to Cairo and then down, um, down into Uganda. And a um, couple of mishaps, um, we didn't have enough money to show that we were... Um, you had to have um, you had to have money to show that you you either had to show that you had a job um, or that you had enough money to get another ticket and so we didn't um, we couldn't do that and so we they flew us to Tanzania we got stopped in Uganda went to Tanzania but then were flown back um, and had a choice of going either to Cairo or to um, Germany. This was on a Lufthansa flight. And so we had friends who were working in um, Cairo. And so we went back to Cairo and um, then made arrangements through contacts to finally go to Tanzania. Did you know that you were headed for Tanzania all along? Or Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, we were, that's where we wanted to go. Um, it was English-speaking. Um, Nereri was, you know, we thought of him and still think of him as um, one of the certainly more progressive. Um, he was, he was, you know, progressive socialist. Um, you know, I, I couldn't think of another country um, mm-hmm. that we could have gone to. Um, you know, certainly not an English-speaking country. You know, in the con- on the continent. Right. So he, uh, Julius uh, Nereri, uh, was a Tanzanian anti-colonial activist and politician and political theory uh, theorist, 
who governed uh, Tanzania as prime minister from 61 to 63, and then as president from 63 to 64, uh, after which he led its successor state um, as president from 64 to 85. Um, and so he was uh, uh, deeply influenced by ideas of African socialism and, and as you said, a very critical figure um, in the history of, um, of social thought in Africa. What was it like for you? Uh, weren't three of your children born in uh, Tanzania? Right, right. And the, the, the last one, the baby, would tell people, well, I was conceived in Africa. <laughs> right. <laughs> we came, I, we returned about six weeks before she was born. So, <laughs> so you know, what, how many years did you live in Tanzania? From, um I think it was about seven, what is it, 68, 69, until 76. Wow. And what was that like? Um, it was an amazing experience. Um, you know, we lived in a village. We lived not as expatriates, um, you know, working with, uh, you know, a multinational corporation or an NGO. And, um, you know, we were there working as teachers for the Ministry of Education, making local salary. Um, and so that was, um, I guess we, we got as close to um, ordinary Tanzanians as one could, given, um, you know, we lived up country, we had electricity from, what, seven at night, seven until 11 at night. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, so it was... Um, it was it was really um, it was it was quite an amazing experience um, to see yourself. Um, well, the first thing is that you realize that there's so many similarities. I mean, after after having lived in rural Tanzania, um, the transition to Africa um, to where we were living in Africa and the rural areas was easy. Um, So what can I, what can I, we were raising children, working. Um, How did you, you know, deliver your children? Oh, in a little, um, a little room that was about, what, nine feet by six feet that only had electricity at night, had a generator, and um, the midwife was Mama Madenge. And she was actually from South Africa, Um she had been sent by the African National Congress to London to be a, a nurse so that she could return to South Africa. And to be a nurse in the British system, you also have to be a midwife. To be an RN means you're also a midwife, which is unlike here in the United States. You don't have a, a license to, to be a midwife um, just because you have an RN. So anyway... She had fallen in love um, with one of the um, maybe 16 people that um, Nereri had sent, that the government had sent to um, be educated. When Nereri um, became president of Tanzania, I think that they were, all, no, when Tanzania became independent, there were only 16 college graduates in the country. So once they became independent, they had to, you know, develop and political infrastructure, leadership, etc. So anyway, Mama Madenge met her husband, um, Mr. Madenge, 
married and came back to where Bob and I were working, um, or we met them, they were already there, in Sameh, which is about 300 miles from Dar es Salaam. And so she delivered um, all of our children except um, the baby, Malika, who was born um, here at Brigham and Women in Boston. Mm. So it was really, um, I learned a lot about having babies. Um, <laughs> um, it, was it scary? Was it scary to have babies with no Western hospital support? Oh, no, that would scare my mother. My mother came over for each baby, six months, and she was aghast um, at the difference between um, how babies were born in Tanzania and how babies were born, um, you know, in the United States. Um, but, but there's an altogether different um, idea about birth. Birth is something that's considered natural. It wasn't medicalized. Um, so when I, and this was just in the air, I can't, you know, Africa is a huge continent, but um, I remember when um, other teachers would get, um, would become pregnant. I remember one in particular, it was time for her to deliver. So the word went out in the community and I was um, really honored by being considered part of this women's group on the, this little campus um, in, in, in Same. And um, so we're we now for us to come and support her while she was in labor. So what does that look like? It means that when people come to visit, you serve them tea. And so she serves tea, and we sit around, we, the women, and we, we watch her. And um, she has a contraction, and we stop our conversation and we watch her. And then she goes and she continues to serve tea or whatever, joins the conversation. She has a contraction and we watch her. And it's an amazing, um, amazing um, process where you are not expected to panic. Um, you're not expected to scream. Um, you go on with whatever you're doing until it's time to deliver. And then people take you, we live two miles from the hospital, to the hospital where you're delivered. There's, there's no high-tech equipment, nothing there. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Janet Moses and Michael Lerner. You know, your baby is delivered. Um... I remember um, wanting to go, I didn't want to stay at the hospital after the first baby. Well, the first baby, Maisha, was hard um, because I didn't believe that labor could be as hard. But um, women, women don't scream. Um, the idea that you scream, that you lose control, that you curse your husband out or, you know, all of the, you know, stuff that people talk about here, it's just not part of the culture. Mm. It, it, it's not. Um, I can't show you what, um, for our second baby, I went to the hospital. Um, it was almost in the open. This is the third one. No. Yeah, Maisha, Maisha, I stayed in the little room with Maisha. We had no light except the light of the stars and the moon. There was no bathroom. Um, in the place. I had to leave her and to go downhill to go to the bathroom and come back. 
Um, and then I went home the next morning um, with our second child. Um, I was determined that I was going to be quiet and strong and all of those things. And I think he was crowning by the time I got to the hospital. Mm. Um, <laughs> I was born 10 minutes after I got to the hospital. Mm. Um, the third one, I'm, Bob and I walked around town. The town is about two blocks um, with a market um, until, you know, and having contractions. And I went in the hospital and, you know, had here, him and went home. So I never missed a meal. I mean, I would go in, deliver the babies and go home. It was only with the first one that I stayed overnight. And all in the hands of this amazing, amazing um, capable woman, uh, mm -hmm. Mama Madenge. How wonderful! Um, so it it was an, it's it's quite um, why birthing has become so medicalized, and I understand yeah. what the statistics are with you know babies dying um, and mothers um, dying. I understand all of that. Um, but essentially, you know, women all over the world have babies um, in non-medical conditions. And um, how you raise the baby, how you nurse your baby, how you take care of the umbilical cord, um, what you eat um, as a breastfeeding mother, all of that is embedded in local culture. So I was the beneficiary of all of that. Um, so anyway... Very different. Very, Very different. different. So Very different. let me ask you an out-of-order question here. Um, when you and I and Bob were down in uh, Louisiana, uh, you know, visiting Norco and other sites, and um, uh, we had an evening where we went out for dinner in uh, New Orleans. And something I remember, um, Bob popped up in the trunk of your car and there was the um, autobiography of a yogi by uh, mm. Paramahansa Yogananda. Well, I didn't know that Bob was uh, deeply involved with, uh, with Paramahansa Yogananda's work. Um, I've since found it, you know, in the literature just referred to. But then as we walked to dinner, Bob walked very slowly and he walked the way um, I have seen other people who were sort of deeply engaged with spiritual practice work walk and you and I walked ahead of Bob and whoever else we were having dinner with and for whatever reasons you I believe were barefoot or something like that because what happened was um, you may or may not have been barefoot, but you stepped on some broken glass. I don't know if you remember this. And Bob caught up with us, and he knelt down and began to sort of pull the little shards of broken glass out of your foot. Do you remember any of that? I don't, I don't remember. I, I will ask him. Yeah. At least unless I'm making this up. Um, but I don't think I am because it's a very vivid memory. But what I wanted to ask, um, just in terms of the historical record, is 
When did Bob get interested in Paramahansa Yogananda and the autobiography of a yogi? Um, this was in Tanzania. Uh-huh. And we had a, um, a group of um, primarily African Americans who um, were like us, finding our roots. Mm-hmm. And one of them happened to be a wonderful artist. And he um, visited us. We were living upcountry, and he visited us, and um, he was a devotee of Paramahansa Yogananda. And so it was he that gave Bob um, the first book, the the autobiography of a yogi, um, which immediately resonated with Bob. And he became deeply involved with it, didn't he? Yes, yes. Well, not... Not in the structure of the organization. No, no, but just in the it's thought. The spiritual practice. Right, right. Yes. Right. So I know we don't have a lot of time left uh, because you have a meeting at 12.30 that you have to be at, and I promised you no more than two hours. But Right. I had said um, my, my meeting actually was canceled. Because the person oh. Canceled. <laughs> okay, wonderful. Well, then we can, we can not rush. <laughs> we cannot rush. Yeah. So let's go back to when you come back to the United States after seven years in Tanzania. Um, and um, uh, what brought you back to the States? Um, well, Bob was finishing up a, um, he wanted to finish up the doctorate that he had started. Yeah. He was here. And um, the other thing, I think that. So that was one thing. Number two, um, Carter was president then, and he had declared amnesty because Bob, mm-hmm. um, having left the country and not gone to the draft, um, was a draft dodger. And that's mm-hmm. um, but once amnesty was declared, um, we decided we could um, go back. And then the other thing is, um, as much, I think that... Um, you know, that sort of that you've done, that the living, that the learning experience that you've had in that particular place is um, that you've done what you could. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether I'm making myself, you know, the sense, well, it's, it's okay to move on um, now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, um, we came back. And I think the other thing was, um, I don't know if you know, the Sixth Pan-African Congress? Yes, I do. Um, so friends of ours were very much involved in organizing the Sixth Pan-African Congress. And it was subverted, um, I think a couple of days or a week or so before the conference was to be held um, the report was out that they were a group of African Americans that were trying to overthrow the government, and there had been a shipment of guns. It was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But what it did, it unleashed the um, the Secret Service, the, what do you call them, you know, mm-hmm. um, CIA equivalent in um, Tanzania, and a number of African Americans were arrested. Mm. Um, none of whom were involved in any kind of plot. Mm-hmm. But it was just, it was, you know, the playbook. You know, how are you going to subvert um, the Pan-African Congress, um, the conference, mm-hmm. um, which is really, if you think about it, I mean, Du Bois 
helped organize, W.B. Du Bois helped organize the first Congress. And this was when most of Africa was not free. So this was an anti-colonial, um, people were coming from all over, you know, the planet to this conference. So that, that, that lets you know, not that you're safe in America, because we know that we're not safe in America, mm-hmm. but it gives you another perspective as to the reach of the United States. Um, and so maybe that was part of the straw. Mm-hmm that um, precipitated us saying, well, you know, we, we're here, we've done um, as much. At one point, you know, we were even considering um, citizenship, mm-hmm. you know, of becoming citizens. But um, we came back. <laughs> and what year did you come back? It was 1976. 76, right. And and so Bob could finish his uh, doctorate. And what year did you decide to become a pediatrician? Oh, my dear. Um, that was, let me see, when, when I became, well, I got to medical, medical school in 1982. Mm-hmm. And um, at that point, yeah, it wasn't clear that it was pediatrics, although it, mm-hmm. that really um, made sense. But 82, so 78, I started taking um, pre-med courses. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because I, the idea, um, you know, that I, I really, I'd like to do medicine. And I had initially, uh, my interest in health, um, you know, my mother's a nurse. But and, I, and your mother wanted to be a physician. She wanted to be a physician. Right. And she would have been a, a fine, fine mm-hmm. um, physician. Mm-hmm. Um but she, you know, it just wasn't time. It wasn't right. her time to right. do that. But anyway, I, I was interested. I, even before we went to Tanzania, I had become very interested in nutrition and, you know, healthy eating and Francis Morlape, what is it, diet for a small planet and mm-hmm. all of that. And so we came back to the United States and I was thinking, well, I, I'll do something that, you know, nutrition, medicine, maybe a naturopathy. But I was an anthropologist. I had been an anthropology major in college history minor, and so I had to take pre-med courses, and the first one of which was biology, and I was just, my mind just exploded at the, um, you know, I, I knew then that nutrition in and of itself would not um, give me the knowledge that I needed to do the kind of work um, that I was beginning to think I wanted to do. But it was the body is amazing, an amazing work of art. Um, yeah, amazing. So I, you know, I think about you know spirituality. I, I you know, Maisha, our firstborn, in that little room with um, in Tanzania, with you know electricity, only two hours. No, they had a generator, but um, she was born at, at twelve o'clock. But after she was born. And I had no, you know, all babies are cold turkey. You don't have everything. There's no such thing as a choice between natural childbirth and something else. Right. And <laughs> right. you're having a baby. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so I was, you know, after, you know, they handed her to me, which was like, you know, a couple of minutes, they weighed her, you wrapped her up. And she looked at me, Michael. Mm-hmm. She looked at me. Uh-huh. And I said, there is no way 
that I could have made this child. Uh-huh. She is actively looking and reading, you know, my face. Mm. It was it was actually an amazing. Um, so that kind of epiphany. Mm. Um, I also had when studying biology. Um, you know the the artistry, the absolute genius. It's it's unfathomable. Um, so anyway, that led me. I said, well, you know, it's medicine. I really want to learn um, more about this and and be part of this. You know, work within this framework. You know, Janet, you just mentioned uh, spirit. That's the first time you've mentioned spiritual spirituality for yourself. And I wanted to ask you, um, what if any form, uh, we know some of Bob's experiences with Paramahansa Yogananda and and other things, what if any form does uh, spirituality or religion or philosophy take in your own life? How how would you describe your the evolution, where you are now, and how you got there in terms of what you believe about the human spirit? Mm. I don't. Um, well, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's a, that's a difficult question. I mean, you make me think. Um, I think my ideas about spirit will never. I'll never put a period at the end. Right, right. I think it's an ongoing um, exploration and a questioning. Um, for a while, I was looking into when I I was introduced um, to Yoruba, um, and this is when I was dancing with Olatunji. But there's a whole, there's a different idea about the world and our relationship to the world and each other and who we are in this shall we call it a cosmology I, I'm not I'm not sure but it's certainly not western um, so that and um, and I'm not I'm not Yoruba I don't practice Yoruba but I think that there are insights there is a knowledge, there is an awareness of our relationship to energy and spirit that is embodied not just in Yoruba, but in most of um, diasporic African traditions um, that have a lot to teach us um, about who we are, the relationship between, that there's a world out there that's a world of energy, and that we are essentially energy. Now you can learn that if you if you study physics, um, but it's also um, something that you are aware of and that you learn within the frameworks of these spiritual um, um, practices. Um, Is Yoruba a, a pronunciation of what I always think of as Yoruba? Or maybe I'm just yeah, yeah. Same. Yoruba, huh? Right. So for those who don't know, uh, it's. Uh, religious and spiritual concepts of the Yoruba people. Uh, the homeland is in present southwestern Nigeria and Benin and Togo, um, commonly known as Yoruba land, and it has diverse traditions. 
but it includes uh, Santeria, Yumbanda, and Candomblé, which are also uh, widespread in the Caribbean, right? Right, and Vodun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's all, it's, um, right, right. I mean, you, you re- most of, I mean, most of the Africans who were enslaved um, were taken to Brazil. Right. So you're looking at diasporic African traditions. Um, when Castro came to New York and addressed the United Nations, you remember this, Michael, when they kicked him out of the hotel in New York City and he went mm-hmm. into Harlem, and I'm forgetting the date. Yes. But the New York Times reported that there were chicken feathers in the hotel, and everybody laughed. But anyway, you're looking at um, a spiritual practice. Right. Right. Um, so... So there is um, a woman, the nurse's um, assistant, wife, she was his wife in a little town at the school. She he was a nurse at the school. But she talked to me and to us about African science. And it's, it's not a quantitative science, but it is a way that looks at energy relationships. I mean, this is, a, you know, I'm not doing justice to this at all. Um, but anyway, that was that was it was an opening for me. And as I said, I I'm not a practitioner of Yoruba, but I feel that there is um, that there is a truth in these non-Western um, traditions, which overlap in many ways. I mean, you know, you think about the Japanese and one's ancestors. Um, the importance of ancestors, of being able to connect with your ancestors. This is not, this is not Europe. Right. Um, so talk to me a little bit, Janet, talk to me a little bit about your, uh, your career as a pediatrician, what you did at MIT and what you learned and what mattered to you uh, as a pediatrician. Okay, all right. Um, I do want to go back just a little bit, put a coda on the spirituality question. Right, mm-hmm. Yes. What takes me closest to spirit, besides my children, my experience with Maisha, I have a dog and two cats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I have fish in a pond. Yeah. And my grandson fish behind me. I'm sitting in front of him now. Yes. But to understand that there is connection, there's communication, there's intelligence, um, there are ways of knowing... And so exploring this, watching them with each other and my trying to connect with them is something that is, um, you know, it, it takes me um, to what one would call spirit. Oh, that's... And that's, where I, that's where I am now. I so think that is a, that's a beautiful path, I just want to say. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, so the the question of uh, just you know this this late later in life experience of a career as a pediatrician after you come back from Tanzania, uh, what was it like for you? Um, it was hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the training was hard, um, but I think um, the practicing was not hard. Um, it was. Um, it's funny you ask that. I, I bumped into somebody at our co-op um, yet last night, and he said, are you Dr. Moses? He said, don't you remember you used to be our pediatrician? 
So that happens a lot around mm-hmm. town, around Cambridge, you know. And, and so I'm the, the grandmother, you know, the, the pediatric grandmother. Right. It's a very special relationship. And um, I think that my experience, um, you know, how I grew up, my experience in certainly in the South and living in Tanzania um, and being a mother, um, and a wife helped me bring something to my practice that um, I think was very special and that I found also rewarding. Um, so that was good. The training was um, was difficult. And some of besides um, the fact that I didn't grow up thinking that I was going to be a doctor and that I had to, you know, all of a sudden move from, you know, the, the arts and anthropology to you know, quantitative, um, you know, stuff um, was not easy. Um, But I think that the hardest thing was the realization that um, medicine, as much as it tries to get at the root of um, problems, um, and that's important, that's that's important, you know, the correct diagnosis, that so much of what medicine deals with is the medicalization of um, poverty, of um, the system um, that crushes people. Um, and so there are no real medical answers. Do you follow what I'm saying? Absolutely. No, Absolutely. I, These are public health issues, and they yeah. can't be solved by medicine. And, of course, right. the public health issues are based in the structural issues of uh, that you've talked about, about the yeah. way American society is organized. It's poverty, it's racism. Yeah. I don't know if you know the history of um, Samuel Cartwright. I don't. So you look it up. He's, yeah. he's a, one of the foremost um, physicians in this country. Um, Southern, I, don't, I forgot which state he was from. But he um, developed a, um, he said that there was something called um, Trypetomania aegyptica. Have you ever heard of it? Um, no, I'm, I'm looking at him, a physician who practiced in Mississippi and Louisiana in antebellum U.S. The in, oh, yeah, the inventor of the disease, quotes, of dreptomania. Trypetomania aegyptica. Yeah, and so, that what it was, trypetomania, mania. We understand that, but it was the tendency for slaves to run away. <laughs> My God. And yeah. and and Egypticus. Yeah, right. Trypetomania Egypticus. Trypetomania, so, the desire to flee from servitude. Right. He diagnosed right. it. He's a medical care. and right. and what he recommended was that you flog them. Yes. Yeah. So he was one of the foremost, and, and we can go on and on and on right. about the um, the poison within medicine itself. Yeah. And of course, if you move to today, I mean, the you know disparities um, in outcomes right. um, are really rooted in this structures of um, white supremacy and racism mm-hmm. um, in this country. Um, you know, blood pressure, um, you name it. Yep. Blood pressure, obesity, you know, depression. For every marker of morbidity, 
um, we suffer under under the weight of this society, and those issues, you know, become medicalized. Your you know your biochemical profile changes in response to your emotional um, life. You know, right. so anyway, well, socioeconomic status is the single best predictor of health outcomes. Right, but in addition to that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that's something that I'm becoming more and more clear, that it's not just socioeconomic income levels. We have a friend who, um, she is now retired. She has her Ph.D. in nursing and from UC Davis. She got it, UC Davis. And her thesis, she was looking at low birth weight and the discrepancy, low birth weight babies, and the discrepancy between... Um, black women and white women. And so that was her study. And she um, she looked at equal income, right? Equal socioeconomic status. But then she began to ask certain questions of, well, do you have anybody who's been incarcerated? Do you have anybody, and I'm just naming this, who's been shot by the police? Do you have anybody who is unemployed in your family? And so when you ask these questions, um, how many people have a college degree in your family? You, you could generate a set of questions. But even though the socioeconomic status of the black mother and the white mother were, in fact, the same or similar, right, their profile was completely different, right, when you begin to look at the quality and the experiences of the life that the black mother lived as opposed to the white mother. And then she began to look at low income, not low income, low birth weight. And so, um, you know, it's, what I'm saying, it's not just socioeconomic status. You're absolutely right. I mean, and that's something in the Collaborative on Health and the Environment at Commonweal, we've, we've looked at for a long time, that combination of... Um, of socioeconomic status and racism. And so it's a very, very complex issue, but they clearly, um, they clearly um, enhance each other very strongly. Right, yeah. right. and you're into fine. And so um, this country drastically changes and it will not be in our lifetime. Right. Um, black, the, the sons and daughters of African slaves will be at the bottom of the heap. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're looking at a caste system, and, and I'm using that language more and more, Michael, because it gives us, um, it raises another set of questions. Mm -hmm. um, so there's one thing to integrate individuals, you know, you integrate them, what does that mean? You know, in the workplace you may have a few people, you know, medicine you have a few people, you even have a president, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're looking at the idea of caste, Right, people they have, who have inherited right this um, labels of inferiority. Not that they're not classes within this structure, but that we are in a box that collectively um, makes us other. Right. And as as you know, Bob is um, very succinctly. He said, you know, you think about all of the work that was done during the civil rights movement of the sixties. All of the work and all of the trauma, and there is one thing that America has agreed to or agreed upon, and that is that black folk can travel 
um, there should be no segregation um, in public accommodations, right? But that's the only thing. That's the only big ticket item that this country has agreed, right, that it will incorporate black folks, not mm-hmm. in employment, not in, um, you know, schools, certainly, not in neighborhoods. I mean, you know, housing, um, you know. And so there's a reason we're in the prison. So I'm just, I'm just saying that this is, um, we have to begin to change our language and think about what we're looking at in a different way. Absolutely. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Janet Moses and Michael Lerner. So I want to, there's one other piece that we just haven't touched on yet that I want to hear your reflections on, which is that uh, when Bob got the um, MacArthur Fellowship um, in 1982, he used it to develop the Algebra Project. And in fact, I went down to... um, visit uh, the Algebra Project uh, with Bob. Um, and uh, I just, and it's impressive, obviously, it's become a national thing. But I believe you were also involved with the Algebra Project. Could you just talk a little bit about uh, that uh, major piece of Bob's life work since 1982 and how you uh, connected with it? Mm. Well, I, I connected, I mean, and it, it continues to be a major part of his work. And mm-hmm. um, I think I'm not as connected as I was when I was part of a, a, a local, the Cambridge Algebra Project, which was, um, you know, really trying to implement um, the Algebra Project in Cambridge schools. Um, and so at that time, I was very much, um, you know, very much hands-on with the work that um, the project was doing. Um, I'm much less hands-on um, now. Um, what would my role be? Um, I certainly have no official role in the project. Mm-hmm. But I'm, you know, what, the founding board, um, you know, sharer, we share ideas. Um, it's at that level um, uh, that I'm connected. And, of course, I'm connected to the project and that I'm connected to Bob. Mm-hmm. But the kind of, um, you know, organizing that was um, done at that time, um, I am, um, it's not an official algebra project. I am, um, and this is something that is just very new, um, we've just gotten started, but pulling a group together um, to look at the structural issues um, in the Cambridge um, public schools mm-hmm. that um, really end up having, oh, as many as 71% of kids who enter college um, do not graduate from college. Right. So this is, this, is, this is not, these statistics are not um, peculiar to Cambridge, um, but certainly Cambridge, given its resources, should be able to do better. So I've gotten really involved in um, in that work, and um, which is just getting off the ground. Mm-hmm. And um, the only other things that I've done, which is not algebra project, you asked me specifically about algebra mm-hmm. project, but I am for the past five years. I've been um, teaching a course at the high school, helping um, their group of us, uh, some community members, some um, two teachers. 
of record at the high school um, looking at um, racially motivated murders um, from the 20s to the 70s, and that's in conjunction with Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project at Northeastern Law School and the work that Barb, Margaret Burnham um, is doing. And so we give the history, that we contextualize the experience they're going to have um, or the case that they have to study and investigate um, within the history of um, the country, looking particularly at the history of the period, um, which is the Jim Crow period. And then they are taken down, they, um, we take them down to the site of the murder in which they do investigative work. And, and while they're doing that with us, not the investigative work, but we have them um, for, you know, three to five days a week during the school period, two days a week, um, they're going to, they go to Northeastern to learn, um, you know, investigative, what do, you know, what do lawyers do? How do you investigate these kinds of cases? And so that's what I've been doing for the last five years. So it's not algebra project, but it's... Right. But it's an extraordinary piece of work, and you and I have talked about it before. Uh, right. And it's it's worth people Googling, uh, Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project. It's www.northeastern.edu slash civil rights. And uh, there you find a, a really beautiful description of this extraordinary work of taking cold cases uh, out of the Jim Crow era and um, and investigating them, among other things. Right, yeah. So this is, I think, it's, what's unique about it is that we're doing this with high school students. Right. They have, they have um, right. you know, lawyers doing this, but this, um, right. they've been taking us under the wing, yeah, under their wing. So, mm. you know, and this, you know, Michael, is in extraordinary times. You know, I don't know whether you, um, MIT, um, made a statement, what, yesterday, two days ago? Um, they've been, they've had students investigating the history of MIT and its relationship to slavery. And so um, the founder of MIT had eight slaves, mm -hmm. right? And I don't know whether you're familiar with um, Ebony and Ivy, which is a book of, you know, the relationship to, to slaves with major universities. But, you know, this probably would... It's, Ten years ago, you would not know this, or you, this would not be public information. So um, the president of MIT has made a public statement, and they're having a conference on Friday um, to talk about this history. Um, and in doing so, it means that so much of the history in this country um, really has to be changed, you right. know. Um, the book you referred to, Ebony and Ivory, Ivy, Ivy uh -huh. yeah, Ebony and Ivy, Race, Slavery, and the Troubled History of America's Universities right. by Craig Stephen Wilder. And right. it was actually a 2006 report commissioned by Brown University right. that led to this. Remarkable right. book. Remarkable book. Yeah. Well, there's, there's no institution. I right. mean, I mentioned, we mentioned Samuel Cartwright, the doctor. Right. right. There's no institution um, that has not been um, right. corrupted by this right. history. This is so much the bedrock of right. our country. And um, in facing it, in really facing it, there's an opportunity to do something right. about it, you know. Well, you know, two two things in closing. Uh, let me start with the personal one and then go to the public one. But um, 
your long marriage and partnership with Bob. Um, you know, uh, many of the people I know who are married to um, uh, extraordinary public figures, uh, however much they love each other, uh, sometimes face an identity issue of what it's mm -hmm. like to be married to someone who is, you know, really publicly iconic, despite the fact that Bob did everything in his power not to be. And I'm just curious, um, what has this partnership been like for you? And it has it been challenging in some way, uh, no matter how much you love each other, to, to live uh, in some sense um, with, uh, with a partner who is such a, a major uh, historic figure, really? I think... You know, we, we, as with any relationship, you know, you have upswings, downswings, upswings. Right. Uh, I, I think we're on an upswing. You know, we'll be 50 years. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. And I think we're on an upswing. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to the mountain, right? Oh, uh, that's great. It's Valentine's Day. Yeah, it's Valentine's Day and Ash <laughs> Wednesday. Yeah. But I think one of the things that's really been, um, and I, it's part of it, is Bob's, um, I think, humility and strength. Yeah. Um, that he was never, um, as the kids have gotten older, they, they, they certainly are aware of what, um, how important his work has been. But growing up, um, his kudos were around being dead. Yeah. So you, you have to leave your public person, right? And the public person is a, it's a hint of you, you know, but not the essence of you. Right. You know, it's... Um, so at home, and it's always been the case in Tanzania, I mean, he, you know, he was not a public figure, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, he was dead, and so that's a healthier relationship than, than living with an icon or an image um, that doesn't exist. Right. It doesn't exist. And so, in fact, when Maisha went to high school, Maisha's our firstborn, and her high school teacher um, comes out of, um, he's a movement, um, progressive person, and so um, when she was in his class and, you know, what's your name? What's your name? And so she says, Maisha Moses. And I think he did her from the grapevine that, you know, Bob and I were back in town. But Bob was, you know, that they were living here. You know, Bob Moses is here. And he said, Maisha Moses? Who's your dad? And so she said, Maisha's name is Bob Moses. And, of course, he just, you know, exploded. Bob Moses. The Bob Moses. And so she was flabbergasted. <laughs> <laughs> How remarkable. What do you mean, Z Bob Moses? <laughs> yeah. But it's um Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's a good response. You're on an upswing, and it's almost fifty years. <laughs> so the the last thing I need to ask is just we need to acknowledge um, what an extraordinary historical period this is in the United States that we're living through. Um, and um, I know, I think in a sense, your, your sense of, of otherness um, 
enables you to see it in a in a special way. Mm-hmm. But uh, how do you hold um, this particular period in American political and social history? How do you how do you see it, and how do you live with it? Mm-hmm. I think. <clears throat> Well, just I think there are a couple of things. Um, having lived in Mississippi helped. Yes. <laughs> right. Right, you know, exactly. It, it certainly does. I yeah. understand that um, what you are seeing now is really the, the tip of an iceberg. I mean, you consider the, the violence um, that people live in in the South, particularly in the South. Um, and how they found a way to live within this horrible, horrible system um, and survive. Um, and having been privy to that, you know, through the movement, um, you have a sense almost of, of deja vu. Right. You know, that we've seen this before. Yeah. The other part, Michael, is that there is such American... America is really um, suffers from amnesia. And so, you know, the history really helps us. But Trump is a Dixiecrat. Mm -hmm. And the language of the Dixiecrats, the Mississippians, the Alabamians, blah, 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 you know, the states' rights argument, he has brought that out onto the national stage. Mm -hmm. And so the argument is no different. I mean, what he is saying is what black folk have lived under since we've been here. Mm But it's now it's the language of the nation. It's not just the language of um, what people call the South. And even that is around because, you know, there, there was no Mason-Dixon line between the South and the North vis-a-vis um, African-Americans. Right. You know, I mean, the, the country, the, the great compromise that enabled this country to become the United States was this compromise around slavery. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. after after um, Reconstruction, and that's a period, Michael, which is probably the most hopeful period, one of the most hopeful periods in this country that people do not talk about very much. And if they do, they talk about it with derision. Uh, but that's changing. You know, ta Hissi Coates, I mean, you know, stuff is coming out now. There's no, there's no question about this. You know, yeah. Baptist, I don't know whether you know. Baptist, Sublette, Piketty, I mean, you know, there's there's windows into Reconstruction to understand that this attempt to establish a multiracial democracy in this country, right, was destroyed through violence. Yes. And the people who lost the battle won the war. Absolutely. Because... The, the Democratic Party, the former enslavers, organized themselves into the Democratic Party. They couldn't do the Republicans because the Republicans were the party of Lincoln. Yeah. And it wasn't. So this was 1875. Yeah. We went down to Mississippi in, 18, in 1960. You're looking at 100 years later, right? And we are fighting for crumbs of what people fought for and tried to establish during Reconstruction, and which was overturned by violence. Absolutely. So, so that, you know, to look at Trump, if you trace his history back, you 
Ronald Reagan, you know, you know, Daddy, Daddy Reagan, whatever it was. I mean, even Obama said he was a Reagan Democrat. I don't think he understands that. Reagan gave his kickoff speech in 1980 at the Michelle Fair, where the three civil rights workers were killed. Yes. 1982, and he said, y'all come. I used to be a Democrat. Yeah. Right? I used to be, I used to be a Democrat, right? Um, but now, y'all know what that is, but now I'm a Republican. Right? Y'all come. Right? So right. now the Dixiecrats, you know, it's what the kids call shapeshifters. Shapeshifters? <laughs> yeah. So you call it something else that shifts its shape. Yeah. But it's the Dixiecrats. And so I think um, it really behooves people like ourselves, particularly, um, you know, in the, how can I say, yourself, Michael, and people that you know. Um, to really face this history. We do. The history is that until the civil rights movement, until black kids got up and said, you know, we're not going to sit, you know, at the back of the bus, the lunch counters, you know, we're going to vote Montgomery, all of those things, right? We would still have the same old system. Janet, I think that's a, a perfect note. Um, and I just want to thank you for this extraordinary conversation, uh, for your friendship. Um, I'm grateful to fill in a little piece of important history that you have held. I don't think there's any, any document like this. So um, I just uh, appreciate this time with you so much. And, Michael, it is mutual, and I'm hoping that, you know, when I saw you last year, yes. Mike, the pictures, it was so wonderful, so wonderful, um, even though it was the occasion of a friend yes. transitioning. Absolutely. And so you have a special place in my heart. And, and yours, a uh, you have a special place. And you have a special place in my heart as well. So give Bob my best and love to you both. Okay. Take care. And thank, thank you, Janet. Thank you You're so very much. Welcome. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Janet Moses and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.